and we are recording. So how many matches do we have left? We have 10 matches left, right? Yeah. We only need nine wins. Do we think we get it? I mean, we can also go 10 for 10. Like, why why, why aim low, Q? <laughs> uh, because, like, it, it's fitting that the, the new season of Ted Lasso is out because, honestly, it's that's the true. hope that's going to kill me. Like, we are approaching April, top of the division, top of the league, and I couldn't tell you the last time that we had, like, this much of an opportunity to get it done this late in the season. Um, I love watching this team. It reminds me of sort of the, like, the last time I remember this team being, like, just this fun to watch was when Andre was was on the team. Like, that's how long ago. I, I genuinely, like, say what you want about the Fabregas RVP teams, but this team has honestly, win or lose at this point, this is up there as one of my all-time favorite Arsenal teams. Like Martinelli, that's my dude. Gabby, oh, I love Gabby Martinelli. They're also fun to see in life. So, like, um, obviously, I do live in London. Rub it in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a 10-hour flight for you. <laughs> um, and it, it's really different now because I used to see a lot of matches at the Emirates where, like, you know, it wasn't super electrifying, but, you know, if there were 2-0 down and they would come back and you would feel sort of like, oh, shit, when is possible in the books or is possible today? And this this season, the few matches I've been going, it's just like, okay, lads, we're down 1-0, 2-0 or whatever. Like, we, we can start it around. A draw is absolute minimum. You sort of have that higher level, which is quite crazy because I think if you look at our roster, it's not like we have bad players, but it's... You know, we, we don't have a Haaland in there, let's, let's, let's be honest. Like, we don't have that guy or whatever, but we don't need it, apparently, because we can keep up with him. No, and honestly, like, like I'll, I'll own it right before the Leicester City match. So they'd already started the mm -hmm. season a little bit, the, mm -hmm. the very first one, like, way back in August. And I was mm -hmm. at my buddy's house in Nashville, who's also an Arsenal fan, and we woke up early to watch the match. And I kind of said, I was like, look, I want... My goals for the season were qualify for UEFA and win the Europa League. And I kind of even said, I was like, I think we've got a better shot of qualifying for UEFA, like the, the Champions League next year <laughs> by winning Europa than I think we do by getting top four in the league. Candidly, like that's what I, that was where my head was at in August. And I think the thing that this team has done excellent that Leicester did very well the year that they won was they won all of the matches that they had to win. There were mm -hmm. sure we lost we lost that Everton match. We had that draw against I think Southampton. But beyond that, it was every match you expected to win, they won. And then they went places and won too. And that's yeah. what was like beating Chelsea, beating Tottenham. Like it is we have one more match against Man City and that that if we win that match, we win the league. Like it, it's kind of it's scary to it's scary to say something like that, but <laughs> I digress, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Late Night Bitcoin. I'm joined by my good friend Joel Kai Lenz, all the way out in London. We are recording this at a at a reasonable hour, so yeah. <laughs> forgive us. Thank forgive you. Us if this is no, this is not uh one of the live episodes, but these are this is an episode with a European friend, and and this week we have a couple of these type of episodes, so. Hang in there, guys. I, I hope you appreciate and enjoy these. 
Um, Joel, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Q, and uh, for making or being able that I can record it. Because I would have gotten up at an early hour, but like I wouldn't nah. be sure if my flatmates would be would be enjoyed about the the whole thing. So shout having the lunatic in the living room shouting about Arsenal at like two a.m. <laughs> It's definitely no, no. Not, not enjoyable. No no. <laughs> no, no, we don't need to do that. Um, let's uh, let's start let's start the episode the way I like to start every single episode. Joel Kai, what was the very first time you ever heard about Bitcoin, and what was your initial reaction? I I think I heard it for the first time in November, December, twenty twelve. Just because a friend of mine um, sent me like a message saying like, hey, have you seen this this internet thing? He was big into like World of Warcraft. So um, there used to be the idea of like, you know, magic internet money. And I looked at it and at like for five minutes, I was like, oh, okay, it's got this, this weird concept behind it. Um, I understood enough technical stuff to like get what's going on. But I was like, yeah, I'll just put it into my like um, uh, pocket, like a read later saving service or whatever it's called, um, and just flat out ignored it. But the first thought was immediately like, yeah, it's just another one of those those internet currency figs that sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. So I want to I want to get in a little bit on just like like you know that the idea of like what like what is this like this crazy internet money like mm. it's it's part of the journey i've just come to accept you know there's a a rare breed of bitcoiners that are like they hear about it and they're like oh yeah and and i'll be honest like a lot of them it's they're gamblers like that's mm. that's a big trait i tend to notice in the people who are like yeah i got bitcoin right away or they are like very ingrained in the commodities market, not the stock market, but commodities markets. Those type of people, it clicks much easier. But then for most of us plebs, you know, like we hear about it and it doesn't, we don't necessarily see it. And in the conversation I was having last, I'm recording this the day after I had the conversation with Eastside Tony. And one of the things that I talked with him about was you know bitcoiners tend to i think or at least people when they first hear about bitcoin there's like that heavy dose of skepticism doing large mm -hmm. because like all we've ever known in our lifetime and you know I'll, I'll dunk on the country you live on now like dude your lifetime my lifetime it's been the dollar maybe like mm -hmm. way way back in our grandparents lifetime it was it was the british pound but for the most part now, you talk to people around the world and they've only ever known the U.S. dollar to be the most powerful currency in the world. But that's not always been the case. Now, it's too early in the morning for me to have these high conversations, but like we can go down the rabbit hole of, right, but, you know, we live in a simulation that I genuinely am starting to believe like it only started in the like late 1900 or mid to early 1900s so literally we've only ever known the dollar because that's what this simulation was designed to feed us and it gave us history but conversation after i roll up some joints and smoke them um let's talk a little bit though about this just concept of like all we've ever known is the dollar 
and how hard it is to break that reality to this new reality of, oh, money, just like everything in life, has always changed, especially the quote-unquote global reserve currency, which is also a new phenomenon from like mm -hmm. this generation. I mean, what's crazy for me is whenever you turn any media on, is whether that be like, you know, I don't know, Bloomberg, CNBC, they are obviously very much Americaized. So um, I think most of these media companies are based out of the US and sort of have their international holdings. But like everything is priced into the dollar. So even if you try and escape um, the dollar standard, you're sort of sitting there going, okay, and how do I do this? Like every pricing page is in the dollar, everything is um, being converted back into dollar. Um, I'm just thinking of a real world example, like even uh, even if you go to the city of London, there is often, obviously, we do live on like the pound for whatever it's worth, um, but you do see like a lot of cab drivers who price their um, rights in like dollars and then you see sort of the with today's conversion rate because they have that many international people coming in and out who are used to it um what i find fascinating though is if you go a step further and you ask someone like um do you know that the dollar is a world reserve currency most people go like um no but like it's the biggest one right um and then if you go even further than that and ask him well like how do you think the dollar works? Like, is there some secret department handing out dollars? Um, is there a printer? Is there a fun computer doing stuff? They just sit there and go like, oh, I don't know, you know, in my Revolut account or in my digital bank account, I could just flip my local currency to the dollar um, and it works. So um, it, it's crazy to think about these aspects and even other things like subscriptions, everything gets priced into dollars. It gets converted automatically. So, yeah. Definitely not something, definitely not something you think about early in the morning, late at night, I think. <laughs> no, and, and it's like, there are a lot of reasons why, you know, I, I definitely think a part of it is just that level of education is not something that we strive for, both in this country and in your country. Like, mm. it's not like you're say what you want but like we're we're focused more on learning things like the periodic table of elements memorizing that rather than understanding how to do our taxes but like i can do long division which it, it is a skill that everyone needs to know like mm -hmm. in my opinion like there's a level of basic knowledge that everyone should have but i understood long division in the fourth grade like Sure, you could be mathematically challenged and I'll give you until eighth grade, but like high school, the fact that we don't, like I got to fill out my freaking taxes in this country still. Like <laughs> I, I'm floored that, and we can get into the reasons of, you know, into it, paying enough lobbyists to keep this whole like tax system so challenging so that people have to go and pay for these tax services. I get it. But there's a degree where I think we've done a disservice and whether it's intentional or not, like I'll leave that for a different part of the conversation. Um, how much onus do you put though on families and parents to try? I'm not saying the parents need to understand and know like the lies of fiat, but you know, walking your kids through like how, how you're supposed to manage your bills, manage mm -hmm. your personal finances, like pay your taxes. 
like how much how much onus is it on them um Firstly, a huge responsibility. I think I was always very lucky because my um, my both of my parents and so my mom used to be a banker. <laughs> funnily enough, um, she then went into um, consulting and all of these fun things. And my dad used to work in um, construction, interior design all the time. So they sort of had that, uh, you know, cash flow management um, upbringings. So I was brought up with like the rule of thirds. If you want to buy something for a hundred bucks, you got to have at least 300 bucks in savings, all of these things. But I also seen the negative side of it all. So I think it's important to teach your kids, um, you know, what is cash flow? What is illiquid, liquid, all of these things. How how does the economy work at the end of the day? That's a big topic, but you can teach kids that in a very simple manner. But it's also good to experience the negative side. I've seen this with my granddad. Um, he used to be self-employed all his time. And, you know, basically working till he was 75, 78, something like this. Um, and never really getting, like, why he's losing money because he never adjusted his prices for, like, 25 years. And so when I came out of, like, high school, I told him, like, dude, there's this thing called inflation. You should maybe look it up. <laughs> if you stick with the same price for 25 years, it's going no places. So I think family has a huge role to play there. Um I would just argue, like, teach your kids both the good and the ugly because um, they learn more in the ugly side. Like, to this day, I still have principles in the back of my head with, which were mistakes my granddad did um, because I've learned a lot of stuff. Uh, oddly enough there, Q, like, did you ask me about the dollar presents? My grandparents still believe that, like, one dollar is worth, I mean, they don't believe, but, like, they have this perception that... um. They need to pay um, uh, four Swiss francs for one dollar because apparently that was for a very short, brief time in history, somehow a conversion rate. I was like, hang on. I mean, the dollar to Swiss franc was always very strong. I knew like the pounds to um, franc was a bit different, but um, they still have this perception like the dollar is so strong because at one time in our life we paid that much of a conversion rate or we had such such a huge difference in like presence. Um for that they stuck with it. I, I want to pause for a second. So smooth brain, not smart person. I want to walk through this for mm. a second. Your grandparents at one point in their lives would have to give four Swiss francs to get $1 back. I'm following that part, correct? Yeah, but I, to be fair, it was like a week maybe. <laughs> what right. point well, in history. But, but like there was but, that time, yeah. But today right now, like I just, just I wanted to make mm. sure I had this right. One dollar US instead of getting you four francs, which is what your grandparents remember for that one week of their life, that that is just it's stuck, only gets you ninety two cents. Mm -hmm. Like technically speaking, the Swiss franc is actually stronger than the US dollar. Mm -hmm. Like just again, and I, I'm not trying to knock on your grandparents because I think that's a very common. Mm -hmm. thought process it's it's the norm and i i challenge people who might maybe disagree with that or who who think otherwise that go have a conversation not even just with your family like go have a conversation with a normie stranger go ask mm -hmm. your starbucks barista what they think about like if you're in america ask someone that you know who is not a bitcoiner what they think about something like Silicon Valley Bank. Go ask mm -hmm. someone if you're in Europe about Credit Suisse. 
Like these are these are things that for us it's like the doomsday end of the world. But for the everyday person, like it's not on the forefront of their mind. Funny enough that you mentioned it, like um, we can get into Credit Suisse a bit later, but I remember when all of these banks are going down, like my grandparents, friends from Switzerland call me because I've been I've been sort of calling out Credit Suisse since 2018 for other various reasons. I can explain that later. Um, but I was still going there, you know, I, w- I was sort of Bitcoin that me was like, Okay, you're getting there. You're asking the right questions. Like, well, well, didn't they protect like depositors? Like, isn't the money I put into the bank 100% 100% Q <laughs> safe and stored there and technically over collateralized? I was like, no, dude, they don't even have to collateralize anything at this point. Like, can they go full on fractional reserve banking, take the 100 bucks, lend it out completely, probably over leveraged by 1000x? Um, probably not 1000, but more than. 10 enough for surely um and sort of play that game right um but you still get into you always run into the same or like oh okay but you know at the end of the day like we have systems in place and like they can't do what they want i was like if that were the case none of the fuckers would have survived 08 you know because they should have all stopped work there um been thrown in jail in my opinion everyone can have this different opinion there of course but um that was sort of the point we should have stopped and brought in something different, which someone in this world or a group in this world did. Um, they at least thought about it. Um, and now we have this option. But yeah, completely. <clears throat> if I talk to the people who um, hand me out coffee in the morning, if I go and grab one for breakfast and I ask them, like, do you think we're in a recession? You know, the initial answer I get is either it says no in like the local newspaper or well, or on the local website. Or, um, yes, we've been in it for like a couple of months now. I can really feel it, but I can't explain to you why, which which is I think that's the crazy part. Like how how fucked up is the system that these people can't see through um, something very simple, I think, because um, if you actually get it once, I think it's not too complicated, but apparently it's a hard way to get into that that thought process. I wonder. Just. <sighs> Like, I wish, uh, no, who are you, who's calling me? No, don't do that. Um, I genuinely, like, I wonder what the conversations were like post-World War II, or honestly, maybe post-World War One, when the pound was really weakening and mm-hmm. there was that moment where the shift happened because we've only, we've only read about it um i i don't have family that lived in western parts of the world even at that point in time all of my family was in iran like they were dealing with sort of recouping and fixing the country post-world war ii because both the british and the russians were using that country for their own personal gains and needs and sort of destroyed it but iran was very much on its own so I, i i want i wish I could better understand because you you would have to talk to someone who is at least a hundred, if not a hundred and ten years old, because you can't just have been born. You can't be a kid during that transition mm. because you're not comprehending that. Like you're just not. If you're ten years old and that shift happened, like for all you know, that's just what it was like. Um, but we are bearing witness to that a similar shift happening in a 
in a much different way, of course. Um, but I want to I want to press and ask on this. So, as I kind of alluded to, you know, post World War II, we had the Bretton Woods mm -hmm. meetings, and that inevitably led to the governments themselves deciding that the U.S. dollar is what it will be backed by gold, and everyone else will back their fiat currencies on the dollar. Today, right now, you have all over the world, countries are reaching agreements amongst themselves on how they want to settle trade. And that is the most important, genuinely, it is the most important sort of role that the US dollar has in the world is the settlement of global trade today right now, mm. specifically the petrodollar. But you're seeing trade for any resources really start to get changed to the local currencies. I'm going to just keep using Iran as the best example. Most recently, we see Iran and Saudi Arabia reach a deal through China. I'm going to give you a hint. They're not agreeing to use the dollar. Of course not. <laughs> like Russia and Iran coming to terms that they're going to create their own mutual currency to settle their trades amongst one another. I'm going to give you another hint. Right now, it's not Bitcoin, and it sure as hell ain't the dollar. Um, it is fascinating to me. And like look, China made countless deals with other Middle Eastern countries to settle their trade and their local currency. Russia has been doing the same. Like whether we want to act as though these things have no merit or not, I think that's a bit naive and, and um, arrogant, if I, if I could just be yeah. blunt about it. So, in my opinion, we're watching Bretton Woods happen. Bretton Woods three, four, five, six, Whatever. seven, eight. Like it's literally it's happening, but not in a large meeting room with every country. It's individual countries. Um, Have you ever seen that drawing? I think it's now probably older than like a hundred years, where you sort of see. I think it's the U.S. as like a a fat. Edgar Hoover, whatever, or whoever it was. And um, I think it was Europe or, or maybe France, Germany sort of displayed like figures and standing around in like huge postures, like giants compared to how small the other ones were, were uh, China, Russia, and I think Africa. And it sort of set on the headlines, um, Europe and America is destroying itself from within. And we're the dumb, dumb big ones. I'm not I'm just quoting guys. I'm not like saying anything to anyone here. We're ready to take over because that's how it's always been. And I sort of saw this thing a couple of days ago on Twitter. I was like, holy shit. Like if they've seen this a hundred years coming in, it kind of gets your brain thinking to like, okay, to what you started earlier, that illusion we're living in, like how far has the dollar been? Um, I wouldn't say placed, but like put in place as something where like, okay, yep, we're going on this thing for a hundred years. Um, and if it breaks, like it always does in the way they do it with every reserve currency, um, Russia, Africa and China especially is there to step up. I think it's a, if you look back at history, there are a lot of these clues to leading up to the thing where we're coming in now, which is fascinating. Yeah, I, I definitely it. It almost it's like they want us to find out and they're like mocking us mm -hmm. by doing it. There's like a, a little bit of that where you're like, you are, what? Like, really? You're just going to like jokingly say these things? Like, um, 
I'm curious what your thoughts or feelings are, though, on just, you know, to go back to sort of the, the situation that I presented, um, these different countries that are starting to make deals where they will sort of finalize their international trade with other trade partners in other currencies, um, what short and long-term effects that may have just on the world economy and just money in general. I don't want to necessarily focus on the dollar. I love having like someone like you who just lives in Europe who, who doesn't mm. use the dollar on a daily basis because I think there's a level of there's such a level of privilege and a lack of understanding of what the rest of the world wants and needs when Americans just talk about the dollar amongst themselves. Yeah, I've, I've, so first of all, I think there's definitely going to be a, a clash of giants. You know, if, if let's just say Saudi Arabia, that part of the world does these trade deals, I think for surely one with Russia, for surely one with China. China and Russia is now already in talks. And you sort of get that triangle there. The next logical step for them is Europe. And Europe is a huge safe haven for like the US because it's a big trade partner with all of the different countries, Germany, the UK, etc. Um, so I think there'll definitely be some 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 clash. I don't know if it goes down like the historical context, you know, Cold War and all of these things, but I could potentially see something of that sort happening. I think we're in the early phases of that already. Um, but for people in Europe, it's actually ironic because a lot of people, I would say, look towards America for like, how should we proceed our economy? Like, what should we do? But then they know we sort of live in Europe. We're a bit snobby. We have our own ways of doing things. So we look to like the next biggest thing, which I think right now is in the East. Potentially looking into China. That's why a lot of like politicians in Europe also like China very, very much because it's possibly next the next big daddy. Um, and I think <laughs> living in London, I see it a lot of time if I'm in the inner city of London. Um, there's a lot of like backroom stuff happening with like the um, United Arabs and all of these countries. So I think there's a lot of stuff going on right now where people know the dollar is sort of weakening. Um, but they haven't seen that 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 fight yet or that clash. Um, but I think normal citizens, again, over here, they just go like, oh, okay, you know, we're not importing gas out of Russia, so it's it's getting expensive now. These are the bad guys. Um, China is an option. They may be helping us, but, like, America will save us. I think that narrative will stick for a very long time, but sort of will be the big boys fighting above everyone for the foreseeable future. I'm, like... I say this, but I'm not surprised, but it, it is disappointing that, you know, it, it, it just confirms sort mm -hmm. of in the same notion of, of what I said that, you know, go go outside of our circle, go outside of the Bitcoin or bubble that we all live in. And you start to realize like, oh, most people buy these media narratives. Most people just mm -hmm. think like, you know. Nothing is as bad as the doomsdayers, as as I like to call myself, think it is. Um, but there's a, a degree where we have to be cautious, and it, it's by the time. And th this is sort of what I always say to my dad, because my dad is king of telling me like, "You are in the echo chamber." Like, 
get outside of it and you will start to see that there are other things going on that are working that will keep this system alive yep. for longer than you may want it to be around. You may be right that eventually, eventually you will be right. But it, I think he says, I think it'll be much longer for you than yep. you realize. And I, I, I kind of agree with him, to be honest. People will call me bearish. But I'm, I'm more of a cautiously optimistic type of person. Um, I mean, just look at certain events happening in Europe, especially for, what were that, like 35 years-ish, I would say. Like you had like the, the Berlin Wall falling down and sort of all of these inner European fights. But every country had its own currency. Every country sort of had its own economic advantages, disadvantages. Then they built up the European economic zone, which made sense, you know, let's open up the borders in a sense that we don't need every agreement back and forth. Um, and then suddenly like, hey, we, we're doing this like one currency thing. Like we, we came up with the euro because we're European and either you get on board or you don't. And I think that happened more or less in like a couple of years. Um, and that's how quickly Europeans adopted. So for us, Bitcoin is to think that even though Bitcoin is amazing and it has all of the advantages, you can't expect normies to like come in and immediately change because just because a couple of points make sense or because a couple of people do, um, which is why we need nation state adoption in Bitcoin, right? You need these examples to tell people, yo, dude, like they did it, it worked. Um, we can see if we can try it as well. Um, but I think it's it's very, very arrogant from our end to think that um, just because people might see lightning in action without fees of third parties or because you can store your own money that um, everything is getting on board. Because I think we, we do have to remember a lot of people actually don't want this. Like they want a service where they can go to and say, hey, I have, I don't know, 10 grand in pounds. Can you convert this to a dollar for me? Because um, I need to send this. And oh yeah, I'm giving you all of my savings because I'm sure you're doing a good job with them. A lot of people like this. They don't want to be um, self-custodying. They don't want to have power over their own finances. Because it's sort of, again, that financial illiteracy where they go, oh shit, I haven't actually never learned it. Or I don't have a clue what I should do in the next 30 years. Um, so I think as Bitcoiners, we often have to keep, keep reminding ourselves that like, okay, Maybe you need to go to the same coffee shop 10 times to show them how awesome lightning is. They'll get it at one point, but they'll definitely never implement it right away. Because like, come on, let's be honest. That would be the same as um, if all of those Euro representatives in the 90s would have come to every Euro uh, European country going like, hey, here's the Euro, accept it. Um, and they went off right away. It also took its time. So I think it will take even longer with Bitcoin. Because it's technology. It's not just money. It can be everything you want it to be, right? No, absolutely. Like, there, there's a lot I want to unpack in that. Um, let's let's start on what I think is the easiest part of that conversation, which is this idea that you know the average person does not want to self custody their Bitcoin. Like, let mm -hmm. like the I'm not saying the average Bitcoiner, average average person, person <laughs> wants. If we have to force a shift to a new global reserve currency, they mm. want the easiest thing that looks as similar to what they have now. They want a mm -hmm. bank account. They want a card that they can sort of load up with money, a la a savings or a checking account. 
and then maybe have a separate account as a savings account. So with that said, you, you know, companies like Unchained Capital, that excellent example of you are creating a system where you are allowing people to feel as though there is not that much of a change from the current system. Like I'm spacing on what the proper terminology is, but the fact that you could use a multi-sig, Jesus, all right. The fact <laughs> that you could have multiple signatures access an account, but you don't need all of them, that's literally from a safety deposit box. Like mm -hmm. there are safety deposit boxes that are designed so that you need two, but they'll give you four different keys. The bank will always hold one and you can give the other three keys out to whoever you like. That's literally, that is at its core, that is unchained capital. They have simply recreated that for Bitcoin. That is a product, in my opinion, that will excel, excel in a hyper-Bitcoinized world because the average person does not want to self-custody. Mm -hmm. So there need to be more of these products. Now, like I got into this conversation with the Shinobi at one point and I agree with his point of view that, and like I'm a, I am an 80-20 to the T. Like I, that is a law of life. If you do not know what the 80-20 law is, like go, there's a book about it. I don't remember what it's called because I didn't read it. I just, I've read enough papers about this concept, but at its core essentially is that, and the easiest way I can explain this, Joel Kai, like when you start your car, is it a push to start or is it a key? Neither. I don't drive, but it would okay. be a push. <laughs> Regardless. So, all right. But like when you push to start the car, do you know, do you know fully what is happening in the engine to start the car? No, or do you of course just, not. You just trust that it works or, or when mm. you flip on the light switch. Like I, I naively, like I, just, I don't know these things anymore. I used to when I was a kid. But mm -hmm. now, like, I, I flip on the light switch right here, and it's like, okay, the light's on. But I don't know the mechanics behind it. And that's most people. That's the 80% of mm -hmm. the user base. There's the 20%, though, who can sit there and be like, oh, yeah, the engine gets kickstarted with this. It then triggers this. And, and then now it, it starts rotating, and now it's, like, started. Um, for anyone who actually knows how an engine runs, dunk on me. Make fun of me for that, because I know how <laughs> stupid that sounded. Um, and on that notion though i think bitcoiners and especially those who are building products need to understand that while it's easy to make a product right now for bitcoiners who in my opinion all of these bitcoiners who are right now in in our space like in this area we are the 20 percent, and it's on us to really learn and understand these systems and these processes well enough so that when hyper-Bitcoinization happens, that other 80% can be onboarded so easily and so simply that they don't feel like it's a drastic shift. And in my opinion, if you disagree with that, you are gonna be part of the problem that causes hyper-Bitcoinization to take longer than it should. Because if there are easier options with less friction people are just simple and they will opt for the easier option 10 times out of 10. and i guess i i see it a lot with merchants so there are more like coffee shops and restaurants popping out 
in and around London that accept Bitcoin. But if I speak to them, you know, obviously not, they're going to tell me like, oh, you know, I take Bitcoin because it's it's ungovernable. It, it has a, um, um, it is a capped resource at the end of the day. There will never be one, allegedly never be one in 21 million. I should say it like this. Um, you never know. Um, but they're using it as maybe a payment provider because they can bypass 3.5 or 3.6% fees with MasterCard. Um, if I tell them like, hey, you know, there's this service which like it doesn't cost a lot, maybe slightly some fees are involved. Um, and you can actually set it up with like this payment provider called IPEX, for example, that auto converts it into fiat. Like if you don't want to hold it in Bitcoin, you don't need to, you can take it out in fiat, but at least you save the transaction fees, right? If I speak with normies this way, they go like, oh shit, this actually makes sense. And they've not touched like economics, they've not touched all of the benefits that Bitcoin bring, but they've seen a real life example. Others, gold box, for example, and I can tell them, you know, all it, all you need are 12 to 24 keys, uh, words in your head. Um, for your private key, you can go wherever you want. You don't need to worry to like where to put your gold or your digital gold. Um, that's a big advantage too. And I think it's taking where people are at currently to get the Bitcoin message across because there's so much stuff involved. Um, we haven't touched the energy thing. We haven't touched um, possible alternative for um, remittances internationally. So like all of these things are still in the room, right? But you have to start somewhere where people are like, Oh, so there is a use case. It makes sense. And if they want down, go down more, great. And if not, then solutions like um, um, not multi-chain. Now I forgot to work on-chain. Sorry, um, are there for you. <laughs> Your multi-sig comment got me out of whack. Um, and they're great as well. Like um, sometimes I really don't get the hate within the community to go against one thing that might be a solution, and the other thing is sort of like, oh, you know, people can learn and they will take their time. Most people won't. They would rather watch what's on TV than actually reading a book about, I don't know, economics. No, absolutely. Um, I Do you want to go a little more political right now or should we go over to Credit Suisse? Oh, we can go over to Credit Suisse. Okay, let's talk Credit Suisse because uh, as of this moment in time, uh, UBS has been forced to acquire yeah. uh, Credit Suisse for, for a fraction of its cost. Like they bought it below market value in a forced sale. Um, I would love your thoughts as, as a, you, you mentioned earlier that you're a Swiss citizen, you're half Swiss. Mm -hmm. So talk me through first from the perspective of, you know, Swiss citizens, what is Credit Suisse viewed as within the country itself and then broadly around Europe prior to this incident. So if 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 I go into any city in Switzerland and I ask them with which bank do you hold your money, the most reasonable response would be fuck you, I don't tell you, but <laughs> the normal people would tell you I'm either with Credit Suisse or UBS um or sort of post 2000s there was um post um it's literally called Post Finance, <laughs> um, which is like the, the post office that built a digital arm for payments and such. But like Credit Suisse is the main thing. It's an old bank. It has established itself with its foot. If you go into Zurich, Paradeplatz, you're like right in the middle. Huge building there. UBS is on the other side of that building. Um, so they're present. Um, people use that bank for everyday purchases, their mortgages. 
um, kids' savings accounts, you know, uni accounts and all these things. So it was a an essential tool for the Swiss economy. And I'm really saying was because the bank failed at the end of the day. They can talk smack and um, try to bend the narrative as much as they want. They failed. They had to be bailed out. Um, so I think for the normal Swiss citizen, it was like a, a huge shock in a sense, like, oh shit, this old institution that's worked for years because same thing, right? Swiss franc, it is categorized as a strong currency. Um, I can take my money in, I can take it out, and now they sort of over-leveraged it. Okay, fine. Um, UBS, on the other hand, they were bailed out in 08, so they had that bad rep, but they recovered well, looking back at it now. Um, they had their moods, they had their ups and downs, but they, I think, were put together a bit better post-bailout. Um, so you have these two things in there. Internationally, from what I've seen, Credit Suisse is so intertwined in like all of the different markets. Um, that it really gets ugly fast. Uh, so that was possibly one of the main reasons. Um, I have a few friends working at Credit Suisse, some in the Swiss branches, some in the international ones. And some of them basically told me like, dude, you know, either we come in to work today and we're gonna fail or like we continue going how it does. So like typical <laughs> banker response are like, nice, good to know. Um, but all of them were worried in the international context because they, they said, listen, at the end of the day, the Swiss government is going to be there to bail us out. They learned that in 08, but they were more worried about the international relationships they have established over possibly 50 years, going all the way through all of these different branches and such. So I think that is one of the, the main things, that it is a central thing in Europe. It was one of the older banks. It has established itself as sort of the bank for everyday citizens in Switzerland. So there was a security there. And I think because of that security locally in that country, worldwide or internationally, they could take on more risks, which just didn't pay out. They they, they put uh, they put down their chips on the wrong number or the wrong color, however you want to go about it, and they lost. I think that's a very, very dry, um, proper analysis of it all. Um, what kind of implications I, this has, I don't know. You keep reading like with whom they've been working with, you also see these speculations with like Saudis pulled out in like exactly the right moment um, to like make the bank go 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 down a slide essentially all of these things. But I think it's just down to they established themselves as secure in Switzerland, which many people still believe today, by the way. Um, and they took on more risks than they should have, and they were always there with that backstop. Well, if shit works out, we go back to Switzerland. We're secure. We'll wait a few years and we'll build it up again. Um, I think that was sort of the thing that unraveled in the past, what was it, 10 days probably, um, ever since the whole news came about. It's funny because if you watched uh, The Big Short, mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling's character is a banker with Credit Suisse. And mm -hmm. like they have been in just in the middle of all of these diabolical and i say diabolical intentionally sort of just the diabolical planning and systems that they have themselves created and situations that they have then put themselves in as a result like i get like i i understand 
both sides. I understand why the Saudi government was like, we're not, we can't keep giving you guys money. Like, no. And I also understand why the Swiss government had to come in and say, now, I'm not saying I agree with that decision. I am a free market capitalist. I believe that Credit Suisse, if it is going to fail, should fail. If a company wants to come in, private company, or even a publicly traded company wants to come in on their own and say, we will buy up these assets at a distressed price, Mm -hmm. not with UBS getting a phone call from the Swiss government, go buy this, we'll give you the money, like just go do it, like we need, like that, no. But if UBS is just coming in and it's like, oh, we can just take all these accounts and we can be the bank in Switzerland, like yeah, yeah. I would. Um, like I, I, I'm surprised, not by what is happening, but by the public's response. And I brought yep. this up to my brother. Um, I want to say I want to stay on Swiss. Uh, Europe and Credit Suisse, but I'm going to bring up the SVB just example. Mm -hmm. And I brought up the other day to him. I was like, you know how Biden got up there and said like, oh, taxpayers are not going to be footing the bill to bail out the the depositors. Well, guess what? Here, I showed him that tweet that went around Twitter that showed that the Treasury printed $40 billion and then sent it over to the FDIC. And I was like, I don't give a shit what they say. They're never going to say it's a bailout again because they know how bad of a look it would look like if the Swiss government came and was like, we're bailing out Credit Suisse by telling UBS to buy them. Go, go, go. It's actually crazy. I remember, you know, these are sort of, I think it's probably the same thing for people who were able to see the moon landing live um, or the simulation, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. Um, And I sat in front of the um, Federal Council press conference on on that Sunday where they announced it. You know, I remember, I think it went on for like 90 minutes, maybe two hours. And you had like the national press and obviously international press there. And they called it, I think, 42 times a commercial solution. So it's not a bailout. That was the main response from the Swiss government. Um, And the government secures, um, essentially the government did a credit default swap (laughs) on this deal working out. That's what it is at the end of the day. And, you know, as for the taxpaying people, your money's safe, will not print more. And sort of all of the international journalists sat there asking themselves, like, what the fuck? Where does the 200 billion come from if you round everything up? Because there are always going to be more liquidity into these deals. Um, And they sort of asked, so where's the money coming from? Well, we insured this with that and this with that. And you just do the math where you go, like, it doesn't add up. You're still missing 125 billion, I think, at this point, which you have to create out of something. If you have like a hidden gold stack we've never known about, okay, maybe I doubt it. <laughs> um, and sort of it kept pushing that narrative onto a lot of people. But funnily enough, I asked friends in Switzerland, I asked relatives, like, have you seen the press conference? And all of them went, yes. I was like, it is bailout. And they were like, no, no, they didn't say it's a bailout because, like, you know, UBS is offering, offering to come on board and, like, the Swiss government is securing it and all of these things are in place. I was like, you fucking idiots. I'm sorry. UBS, first of all, is not offering. They have to, as we've seen with the news coming out now, like, they had to take the deal. Otherwise, they would have gotten in trouble. Um, CS shareholders had no 
no opportunity to cast their vote in. It was already decided on Wednesday, essentially, and they just waited until Sunday for the markets to close and not to spark more panic. Um, and that was it. But to look at this and thinking how it cannot be a bailout, I don't know. But again, we're sort of looking at it with these these um, um, Bitcoin eyes where I think everyone has seen the credit default swap charts from CS from October last year. They sort of went on now, recovered a bit into Q4, but now they dropped, obviously leading up to the whole disaster. Um, we all seen this again, but if you just look at this with people who possibly have their bank accounts there, they go by this saying like, okay, they told us it's safe. Even though we create a mega giant bank, like there were two big banks in Switzerland. Now there's one with this merger or acquisition or whatever it was. Um, and what if that one fails in 15 years? Is it then going to get nationalized? And like you're literally at the whim of um, the government forever. Like, is that an option? You know, so I find this fascinating that people, even though I think it's so clear Someone, whether that be a treasury, whether that be a national bank, whatever, has to print money to stimulate that loss to get people in. Um, how you can look at this and think like, oh, you know, everything is bloomy and yes, the bank failed, but they'll take up the slack. Maybe a few bankers will lose their jobs, which sort of they're the bad guys anyway, right? They, they were part of that problem. Um, but they don't realize that the initial problem is the system itself that just continues to bring out more and more of these catastrophes. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to get too deep down because then otherwise I'll start picking apart Swiss ideas and Swiss fundamentals. Um, but it, it, it was funny to see the conference is on YouTube. Everyone could look it up. There were some English passages. You can throw on subtitles in English. You can see the responses. You can clearly see that they were lying in certain parts, but it was good enough of a lie that people believe that, um, you know, it's not a bailout. It is a commercial solution and the bank will be fine, even though it will be the biggest bank to ever exist in Switzerland. Um, and the, the the next biggest danger for a possible um, systematic failure, because that's that's what was at stake. If they would have not saved them, that would have been lights out for Switzerland. And unfortunately, you don't read it too much um, in the mainstream media. But uh, I think that's a different topic for a different discussion. Yeah, I I, uh, I think ultimately the, the age old adage of they've just been kicking the can down the road, and we mm -hmm. are literally witnessing just another kick of the can. And yeah, I think unfortunately to to wrap this part of the conversation up, uh, they'll kick the can and they they may be successful in kicking it, but the distance they kick it is getting smaller and smaller, mm. and we are getting very close to a point where they'll kick a can and it's not going to move anymore. We're getting mm. much closer to that point. Uh, what will break first? We will see, but. Joel, Kai, I want to now flip the script and talk a little bit about down the rabbit hole. Mm. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you guys are cooking up there. I absolutely love my time joining you guys, the conversations and the questions you guys ask. It's, it's a part of, I think, the Bitcoin journey that, again, it, it helps people who are just getting started understand that these people that you think like, oh, they know so much about Bitcoin, like, no, anyone who says they know everything about Bitcoin, like that's the biggest liar in the room. Mm. No, no real Bitcoiner will sit there and say like, oh, I know everything about Bitcoin. With the exception of maybe, honestly, I'll allow it if I ever get the opportunity to meet Andres Antonopoulos. 
like that might be the only person I would actually accept it. Like, oh, you know more about Bitcoin than literally anyone else. Maybe with the exception of Satoshi. Yeah, um, I know one dickhead who claims, <laughs> I'm not going there because you said that the US just could get us in trouble, but um, there are a few dickheads out there who um, claim this preposterous claim. So like, fuck them because no one knows it all. And the idea behind the podcast is very simple. So um, we thought there are so many different communities, groups, opinions within Bitcoin, and there's not really a podcast featuring them because I think even though we like to call ourselves very open and permissionless, I think there's sometimes a very heavy narrative going on in the Bitcoin landscape as well, which is normal if a group of people comes together and sort of claims ownership or part ownership of some of their stuff. Um, and we want to sort of break free there or at least allow people who might not fit that certain narrative to come in. And um, I think one of the easiest narrative is I think Bitcoin is quite America focused. A lot of the development goes on in America. A lot of like the conferences, the companies pushing it forward goes on there. So there is always a tend or a small bias to the towards that. So we want to feature like, you know, people in Europe, people in Africa. We want to be a bit more open there. We're also trying to get people on from Asia and just telling their stories and why they got into because it's fascinating to see most of them had a hardship as a moment of understanding Bitcoin. Um, maybe they weren't able to pay their dad in Africa. Maybe, um, you know, the government, the local government cut um, half of their savings because like, why not? Um, so all of these things sort of are the initial moment where they get Bitcoin. But what they do afterwards is quite unique. Um, some go completely against the main like Bitcoin narratives, you know. Um, I'm bringing up a very simple example, like um, um, not meat eating, um, sort of not, not like you said before, um, right-wing nutters. That's sort of the perception we have in the mainstream media. Um, we interviewed people who go 180 degree in the complete different direction, but they're still a Bitcoiner. So we're interested to hear what their stories are. Because funnily enough, if you speak to everyone at the end of the day, everyone agrees, like, we've got this thing called Bitcoin. It is going to change the future. And it's up to us to do with it whatever we please. That's sort of the main idea behind it. And obviously being UK based, um, we also want to stir up the pot a bit over here because there's a lot of underground stuff going on in the UK. So a lot of like meetups happening, a lot of local events, but um, they never speak about these things. So we want to sort of be the voice of reason to go up there and say, hey, if you have something to say, like you're more than welcome. We want to feature this. And who knows, maybe someone will be listening who hasn't discovered that group yet, but lives very closely. Um, those are sort of the three pillars um, of the top podcast. And I mean, the fourth, we get to talk to Bitcoiners, which is always amazing. So that's a good way. That's a good way to to have or fit everything together. Love that. And where can people stay up to date on the latest episodes and, and stay up to date with everything you've got cooking up? Um podcast player of your choice just look for rabbit hole stories uh, it should pop up very uh, briefly i can also send the link if you like want to um, put it into the comments or whatever uh, i think it's rabbitholestories.co that'd be the domain that's the website and from there on you get to the youtube to the socials and um, all the episodes we put out there they go out on monday 6 a.m london time and we've been on a streak of like 13 weeks i think now so we're we're getting the we're getting the consistency in, which is nice to see. Love that, man. Ladies and gentlemen, that will do it for another episode of Late Night Bitcoin. 
I'm going to go smoke some weed and you should do the same. Good night. We'll be back tomorrow.